A Thoughtful Faith Podcast is a production of Mormon Stories and the Open Stories Foundation. All donations to A Thoughtful Faith are tax-deductible and go directly towards keeping the podcast alive and towards building a community of support for Mormons like you. To support the podcast or to join the community, please become a monthly subscriber today at athoughtfulfaith.org. Welcome to A Thoughtful Faith Podcast. My name is Sarah Collette, and tonight I am joined by Rebecca Mayasato, who is the director and founder of Foundation for Children in Need, which is a nonprofit organization that serves um, the children of Haiti and Dominican Republic. Um, you work in orphanages and with the street kids there, and you've done quite a few projects in um Port-au-Prince and surrounding areas, and now you're in a little village in Dominican Republic, a Haitian village. Yes. In Dominican Republic. Um, I went down and um, stayed with you in Haiti in 2003, um, and you founded um, the foundation in 2001 and left left for Haiti in 2001 and, and then... 2002. 2002. Mm-hmm. Okay. It so. took us about a year to organize. Okay. So I went down years ago and had a marvelous experience, and then it's really changed and evolved over time. And um, But anyway, tonight we're going to talk to Rebecca about um, her life, her experiences, um, what she's learned, her faith, how it's evolved. I'm really excited about this. Um this this interview we've it's been a long time in in the works we've we've tried a number of times to get together so it's exciting that we're finally able to sit down so let's just start at the beginning i want you to talk about um your your upbringing your come from uh how you everything up to the point where you decided it was one of your life's work to go and and be in Haiti and, and help the children of Haiti. Wow. That's a, a tall order to start from the beginning. <laughs> um, I, uh, ever since I can remember, I think I've always kind of dreamed of uh, helping those in need. But um, I think uh, one of the experiences that I have shared with you before um, that was kind of a premonition of what was to come later on in my life. I was reading, I used to get the New Era, and I read a story out of the New Era that was about a father and his journey with his son, who he felt was uh, getting into trouble and maybe just headed the wrong way. How old were you? Just I think I was 15 or 16, but I'm thinking 16. Okay. And I read this, and I was a straight arrow girl. I I was um, in love with the gospel and in love with the church and in love with my God. And um, but I the the article impressed me, and because it was such a sacrifice for the father, and what he did was he 
took a leave of absence from his job and took his son up to the wilds of Canada on a all summer, like three, three months. And they were dropped off with supplies, and basically it was a survival trip. And through this, and they explained the dangers that they went through and fighting bears and taking their canoes down rivers and, you know. And the bond that the father and son formed, and not only that the son went through changes, but the father went through changes and learned to, to love and appreciate this boy. And it impressed me so much. And I remember distinctly making um, a commitment that in the future, if one of my children had a need similar to that, that I would be willing to make those changes or do what was necessary. And later on, uh, fast forward, I did have uh, my daughters that were, I mean, they weren't uh, getting into serious trouble, but I felt like their direction was, you know, you know going in a bad direction. And uh, I had one daughter who, who had a pretty rough time and then my middle daughter, I just started feeling like um, I needed to, to do something for and with her. Through a series of, uh, I won't go into those stories because we want to get on to other things, but um, I, I determined that we were going to go on a humanitarian trip. And we went to Ecuador and that's a whole different story, but it was life-changing for us. It opened up. Um, this wonderful world of service, and we got so many benefits from it. Um, so when we came home three months, three or four months later, we weren't ready to um, to give that up. So how how did it move? How did it move from there to you're going to start your own organization? We didn't want to end it, but we were also the program that we went with. We didn't agree with. We wanted to do things a little bit different. We could see how to improve it, at least for ourselves. So we didn't want to be in a program anymore. We wanted to have the freedom to follow our own path. And so that's when we decided, well, we'll we'll create the organization just so that we can accept donations if we need to and have an official name. And then, uh, so we worked on researching how to do that and where to go. And so um, we finally decided on, on Haiti. And how did you come to that decision? Uh, we had called the LDS Church Humanitarian and just asked them, do you, where is the most need for orphanages? And, and, and they, and the person just said, oh, Haiti. And so we said, okay, that sounds good. <laughs> that wasn't very scientific. And just like, okay, that sounds like a good thing. Where's Haiti? <laughs> so we researched Haiti and um, it's not a whole lot. I mean, you know, yeah. pick a place in the world. <laughs> and and go so, there. Yeah, and it's pretty close. So. so let me ask at this point, I want you to kind of, um, <laughs> I laugh because I, I'm not the kind of person that's a risk taker, right? It, takes me a lot, but to just say, okay, we're going to go to this country now and start an organization. Did, were you worried? Were you afraid? Were, 
I well, mean, here's now the, here's where the craziness comes in because I wasn't ready to give up my job and I couldn't give up my job as early as it would have been convenient to. I sent my daughter, <laughs> your teenage daughter, my teenage daughter to Haiti by herself to <laughs> <laughs> to scout it out. <laughs> but we had there was an an LDS man down in Provo who. We were aware that he was taking a Boy Scout group and they were building an orphanage outside of Haiti. So we kind of knew that she was going to use that as a base camp and then branch out. And so she she is just an amazing, I guess, a risk taker for sure and takes after her mother in adventures, I guess, because... She had no qualms, and I didn't either. And so she was my eyes and ears. And how, she, how old was she? I think she was just turning eighteen. Okay, so this is so <laughs> she's she goes off to so one of the most dangerous will not countries. Be doing this. <laughs> she goes, she goes off to one of the most dangerous countries in the world with one of the most corrupt governments, and she would call me with reports and I was just then I started to worry because I mean she'd call me oh do you think you were naive yeah so you just didn't realize I just don't don't think I realized and I don't know I I guess I wasn't really acquainted with the dangers of the world (laughs) at that point I mean somewhat I was though I lived in LA so I think I was just I don't know why I, I look back and so what she can would I call say? you she would call you and and oh mom I've just been in this orphanage for 24 hours and it's dirty and all these babies oh mom it's wonderful but oh boy it's hard you know it, it I'd get these different reports but she was just amazing so within um that how was she period, getting around she was she hired um i did send her with some money but um this organ this group that was building the orphanage had church contacts and so a lot of the church members one in particular lds church member was we found a driver and he drove her around and so for pay i mean you paid him or i I can't remember if he did it we did i'm sure he got paid something but I'm not, I can't remember how that worked out or okay. why, you know, that's how aware I was. So she went around and it ended up that we hired, that she arranged for him to be my assistant when we got there, found a house for us to live in, uh, rented from some members of the church, our church, and um, got it all in place. And then she came home. And then. Uh, how long was she there? Gosh, I can't remember. Um, a long, I mean, it was probably at least three or four weeks, maybe. <laughs> and so, um, anyway, things got into place when we, you know, packed everything up and I got everything in order and quit my job and we get on the plane. But I'm going to b- tell you that process of going and deciding to go. I didn't have very much support. It was crazy enough, I guess, or different. And I shouldn't, I should stop saying crazy. I say that almost to be funny, but 
it is in some people's minds just a wrong thing to do because it was against Talk the norm. About that. Talk about it. Are you talking about in the church? Or? Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, and I'm sure the community, but my the people that I associated with were mostly in the church at the time. And, uh, you know, I would get notes on my doorstep. They never, they didn't come to me personally, but warning me, you know, why, why would you take your kids into Haiti? Look at this article. Um, my brother-in-law called me and told me that was, I, I'm not a rich woman. I never have been being divorced, a single mom. You know, I've always struggled with money. And, and he proceeded to tell me that this was the kind of thing left for those that were blessed with money. And, you know, that wasn't my place. So it was not a good thing to do. So I had a lot of people with legitimate concerns and uh, not really giving me their blessing. But one thing that's interesting is my LDS bishop at the time gave me a blessing and very clearly said, this is, this is the right thing for you to do and something that the Lord wants you to do. And so that gave me some comfort, you know, at least that little bit of support. But, you know, the community wasn't really on board. They didn't see it as a, a wise thing to do. But um, it was something that was in my heart and that we did. And so we got on the plane as we, when I started uh, having a little fears and doubts, we're all, boy, flying in and flying over. We flew, flew over a ghetto um, called City Soleil. It's one of the worst in the world. And fly in, you fly over that going into the airport. <laughs> And I look down and I'm thinking, what in the world have I done? But I put on a good face for my girls. I didn't want to panic in front of them. And so we landed and I was thinking to myself, we had a one-way ticket. We didn't have a ticket coming back. <laughs> this so, is so out of my, <laughs> my so thinking, What if whoever we whoever arranged to come pick us, what if they don't pick us up? Then what? What did we do? We didn't have any numbers. We had nobody to call. We, I didn't know what to do. You didn't speak the language. We don't speak the language. So luckily, there was somebody there. It wasn't the one that we arranged, but it was his brother uh, showed up. And and from there, the adventure started. <laughs> <laughs> and we never had a minute's rest after that. So Right. So I so let's see that was in the end of 2001 2 2 at the end of 2001 when we got there yeah okay so I came down about a year later yeah it seems like you were in the beginning the very beginning in my memory but I I guess it must have been right yeah so, a while after so initially you you were going into orphanages mhm mm and talk a little bit about what that looked like what what that was like? We um, decided that we were going to explore. Take before we decided where to concentrate our efforts, that we were going to see some of the orphanages. And uh, so we all you really have to do is ask around a little bit, and people are very very willing to take you. And there's hundreds 
of orphanages in Port-au-Prince for a couple reasons. One is people have in their minds, locals have in their minds, it's a moneymaker. They would see American or foreign groups come in um, with money and pour it into, in their view, pour it into these orphanages. And so people would open orphanages just for that, for that motivation. And some would do it, I'm sure, from a desire to help. And um, so a lot of the kids were true orphans, and, and a lot of them weren't. A lot of them were parents that would drop them off thinking it would be better there, or maybe even just in the daytimes, thinking that they would get schooling. But the conditions in the orphanages were horrible. They were just horrible. Some of them were so bad that it, it's almost beyond. It was too overwhelming for us. There was nothing we could do. Give us an idea. Well, one uh, one orphanage I remember at the very beginning was probably a 12 or 8 even foot by maybe 15 or 20 feet no windows, so a door at either end. So it's almost like a hallway that you would walk through with bare um, bunk bed, metal bunk beds with no mattresses, no blankets, no supplies, no food, and just, just kids just packed on these beds in the middle of the day, just staring all ages. Yeah, it was just, it was so depressing. You know, it was just, and they didn't respond a lot. And were you prepared at all? Had you ever seen anything? I mean, had had you had an experience in your life that prepared you? No, I mean, in in Ecuador, we thought that was poverty. You know, we thought that, and it's it's nothing compared to Haiti. And Haiti is a it is a very different place. It's it's a it's a unique country um and it's very very dirty and so it's all of your senses are being assaulted so there's a lot of bad smells there's garbage everywhere there's when my first impression of landing or getting off and starting to drive through the streets is i thought it, it looks war torn it looks like what you see after a war with all the rubble all over just bare cement and rubble and it's hard to sort it out at first because they're so there's such different sights and smells that so when you just a in, lot of squalor, you, in, you know. What did you do? Did I mean what were you just looking to see to find places that needed help or I mean what was Yeah, we were just kind of getting our bearings and deciding where to put our efforts. And we thought, well, we'll help two or three orphanages. And we did we started at one orphanage that was a little bit up a mountain. Um, was probably actually only about five miles from our house, but it would take us at least an hour and a half to get there. That's how bad the the roads are, the traffic in the roads. So it it was really slow traveling around Port-au-Prince. That was one of the biggest challenges is the travel and the the hardships. Just nothing is easy. 
shopping is hard, walking is hard, you don't exercise, you know, getting from place to place, all the cars are very old and broken down, and you're always breaking down, you know, it, just everything is very difficult. But this one orphanage was up a, a mountain road, and the first time that we went there, um, right as we started, maybe 200 feet, you could you could hear this cacophony of little voices, you know. It's on this really busy mountain road that's a very, very skinny, dangerous road. They opened the gates, we went in, and the, and then a wall of smell, you know, of human feces and filth just fills your senses. And all there was a bunch of little naked children. There was um, dog feces. There was human feces all over the cement where the kids were walking, walking through it. Um, very large bellies, orange hair. You know, they weren't in good, in good, uh, but they, those kids. Large bellies, that's a yeah. malnourishment. Yeah. Um, but those children outside were at least had some energy and they were happy to see us and they, you know. They run up to strangers, and you're immediately just loved. You know, it's it's a wonderful feeling. But the for the first little room that we walked into was just again a cement, plain cement room with these metal bunk beds. It seemed like most of the orphanages had these. No mattress, three or four sick babies on each little tiny, you know, wires. They're laying on the wire bunk and so uh, and just staring into space so in comparison the kids on the outer court at least had life in them and they were happy and laughing and you know running up and wanting to be held these babies there was probably 10 or 12 that were in these little tiny plastic chairs hardly old enough to really sit there by themselves and, and I remember looking down and I put my arms down, which most babies have that they'll put their arms up, right, to be to reach for you to be held. These babies didn't even do that. I mean, they were just gone. They were just staring into space. And and that's even started shocking me more. I mean, you can deal with poverty when you see smiles on kids' faces, you know, that's one of the lessons most of the volunteers learned was, wait a minute, they, they really are happy people without the things, right? But these kids, these little children, these babies were gone. I mean, they had checked out, you know, and so, that was heart-wrenching. And so then we decided to see the rest of the facility. So we left these little babies that are in this chair and we we walk through the kitchen to get to the stairs, but we have to walk past this room that's got these double, like, French doors. And I look over, and there's a big screen TV and nice furniture. <laughs> this was reserved for the family that were the directors that were receiving LDS donations. And, but they had this beautiful stuff, right? And we go upstairs and they had, uh, I think two, 
two or three rooms upstairs and it was even worse. So, I mean, if you can imagine getting worse. So then we go in and there's four or five babies in one little crib with no mattresses, no diapers, no baby wipes, no running water. I mean, can you imagine and the filth and the smell and these babies? I mean, it was heart-wrenching. And so, uh, you know, and they were sick and they were malnourished and, you know, dysentery. It was just a mess. And at the same time, there's a nurse that they call a nurse doing your nails with very, very loud rap music just sitting there. No attention to the babies. So this is one of the facilities that we decided to concentrate on. And, and so then I, you begin, there's, there's a couple of issues. One is I'm a worker, so you jump in and I'm also a problem solver. And so I started that process. Okay. What do we need to do? Let's get the supplies. You know, how are we going to do this? And so, and the girls, my girls were just wonderful. We learned to work as a team. I mean, we, we had plans and we learned what worked and what didn't work. But then slowly over, you know, starting at that moment, you start trying to figure out how God fits in and how you fit in and how church fits in. And, you know, you're just trying to figure things out. How does that work? And uh, over the months, you know, I had these little epiphanies or these little experiences that taught me about God's love and and how you find how you find God anywhere and with any of these you know his children I just have to so I am having a physical reaction as I'm listening to this and I think it's because I remember this feeling when I went down and Mm -hmm. worked with you but um I want you to talk about this because I think it's really important yeah I um I think that I knew, I never experienced like some people do when they see that that injustice, an anger, or frustration, or questioning God. How can there be a God? How can there be a loving God that would allow this? I never, for some reason, that was never a question for me. But I did start... Um, having these feelings, especially as I get to know the children, right? Um, of this, this knowledge or this belief that some of the things that I had heard about why some people go to certain stations in life, why some, maybe they've been more valiant and so, you know, or they're farther along or, you know, all of those things kind of went out the window for me because um, I got to be, you get to be very, very honest with yourself. And um, I, I mean, I behaved in some ways that I never dreamed I could behave. I did some things I never dreamed I could ever do or had feelings that I never dreamed that I could ever feel that way. And so Haiti for me was a good, long, hard look 
at not only, well, these bad parts of myself and what a human can be pushed to do um, under the right circumstances. I learned very quickly that I cannot judge another person. You cannot judge another person until you've been in their shoes. You hear that, but I lived it. I knew that that was true. I, I became very, very sympathetic, empathetic to people in those situations, these really hard situations. And I was doing things, you know, that I didn't want to do and I wasn't proud of. I, I don't want to make this about me at all. I'm trying to relate because I feel rage just listening. And I, and I saw it a little bit and I remember going back to those feelings. Mm -hmm. There was a moment on my mission when I remember I went into some of the poorest conditions on my mission. I served in Uruguay and I remember going in one time to this home, no running water, filth. Um, yeah, they would sweep their feces into the dirt floor. And there was a little girl with a tracheotomy that had it was like a handmade tracheotomy. You could tell it had scar tissue all the way around it. And, mm -hmm. and someone had cut a hole in her throat, and that's how she breathed. Little tiny girl. Covered in filth. Just yeah. filthy. Right. And here I am, a missionary, sitting in this home. And I, I had a sense of revulsion. That in I, It was like I didn't want to touch anything. I didn't want to touch anyone. It's snot and mm -hmm. poop and what? who knows what. Right. Everywhere. On all the kids. On, you know, no, nothing's clean. And it was such a horrible um, moment for me because I felt such shame feeling those feelings. Yeah. And as a missionary, you're supposed to be... Right. Representing the Lord, but I had um, one of the most hopeless moments of my life, and I thought the gospel will not help these people. Why are we in this home trying to teach them about Joseph Smith, some white prophet up in? I, you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. Did you have those moments of just hopelessness or that there wasn't anything that you could do? I mean, I, I want to kind of know how you approached it. What yeah. what was it? You know what I mean? Well, it was interesting because um, I pretty quickly realized that it was a very one person, one little act at a time. And I couldn't get bigger. If I got bigger, I got hopeless. If I thought bigger, when I say get bigger, what I mean is if my desires or my plans got too big and too lofty, then it's hopeless. You know, for me it was because I didn't really have, I didn't have a community behind me. You know, I didn't have resources. I didn't have money. So I had my two hands. <laughs> you know, and my daughter's hands. And that's all I really had to offer. But I realized so quickly when the thing is, is that you, I don't know about you. I, I know you because you came. So I know that you were over this too. And at that moment that you described probably passed pretty quickly because when you have all of these little children reaching up, all of that 
worry about AIDS and all that went out the window. I never did worry about that in Haiti. I never got seriously ill, and I feel, I feel protected. And I, I did then, and I do now. And I think that if, you know, I just didn't worry about it. So we were just kind of swimming in it with them. And, um, but when you're, when your spirit and soul is communing with, communicating with another spirit and soul, um, that's important. And so I came to realize even if I give a moment of love to a human soul that may not feel any other moments of love, that's worthwhile. And uh, when I, in 2003, I can't remember exactly how many months after, it wasn't too long after we started our work there, we had a television crew come down. They wanted to follow me. And that's one of the questions he asked me. Well, really, are you doing that much good, basically? You know, how do you handle that? And what do you think, really, that you're going to accomplish? And all three of us, the two daughters that were there with me, I have three daughters, by the way, and um, one was at home already married and had a child. And so these two daughters that were with me, we all said the same thing separately. Is It's all about one person at a time. And I have come to believe that the very best message that any missionary can give and any missionary can feel and that we can feel ourselves is that there is a God that is is love, perfect love. And he is concerned that we spread that message. I am not so concerned about the message of an organization or a church organization, but that there is somebody that knows you and knows your situation and loves you and is aware. I don't know why I felt that because sometimes that's not too comforting for the person that's living in such horrible conditions, right? But it's interesting because people really, if they feel love, they respond to that. So um, I think for my survival, too, you have to really be myopic. You have to really concentrate on what is before you. You cannot think about a whole lot. It's way too overwhelming. You'll be just overwhelmed. You won't be able to function because there's so much sadness. Yeah. So let's talk about your relationship to the church during that time because you you leave you're active in the church you go down to Haiti I assume you had you made contact with the members mm-hmm. of Prince and I know that some of that was positive and some of that was negative and I want to kind of explore that a little bit yeah um so I I hope I'm gonna put a disclaimer here that I mean no disrespect to anybody that I met in Haiti and that I I don't have a desire to criticize um, but this is my own journey my own thoughts that I I went through um, 
because there's many, many good people there. But, okay, there was a, a several issues that started presenting. Well, the, the funny little things, first of all. Let me just say, I was, I guess, very naive to the world, and I was also very naive to the Christian world. <laughs> you know, I just knew my little LDS community. And, and I remember just little simple things. Like there was a, I actually watched this little church being built next to our house in the lot next to it and watched that process of all of these people coming together and raising this church, right? And then every Sunday, I would wake up to this beautiful singing, these rich, beautiful voices, Haitian music that, you know, they have passion in their music, and they put us to shame in our meetings. Oh, it's just, it's sad. It's just embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> it's embarrassing to hear passionate worship music and then go to our our meetings you know <laughs> anyway it embarrassed me but it the music many of the songs i recognized and i'm thinking wait a minute how are they singing our lds songs <laughs> you know they're just like i'm embarrassed to admit that now but i just thought that whole hymn book was ours <laughs> that was our music <laughs> so you know i'm listening to these these hymns and that was a first little little inkling that maybe i wasn't well acquainted <laughs> with the world and so um but i started going to church and that, that was a whole fun experience because i'll you know we'll introduce income street kids and my whole thing with that but um going to the ward was so disheartening for me because it's really, really important. You can last one or two or three weeks not understanding, <laughs> you know. Yeah. But when you don't know the language and you're not understanding a word, it is really difficult to just sit there and um I did. I did for years you know, faithfully went to church, but it was just, I don't know, it was really hard to just keep going. And there was, there was a non-denominational Christian church. I didn't know anything about it because I just, I just didn't know enough. I didn't do enough networking with other Christian missionaries down there to know. Later I did. And it made all the difference to hear, be able to hear a gospel message in your own language. And so that was number one, because the expectation is it doesn't matter if you're understanding, you go to church. Right. You go to what's available. You take the sacrament. You yeah. You go to church and too bad if it's, you know, too bad if you can't understand it. And so I was in that mindset that, well, I'll just, you know, go through this. The other thing that was so hard is it was such work and it was so horrible because when I would go to church every single week, I would have mothers come up and try to pawn their kids off. Would you take my child? Take my child. And they'd push them and say, she's yours. She's no longer mine. You know, that kind of thing. Thinking that, <laughs> you know. Like I, for real. Like, like they were yeah. really giving you their kids. Yeah, like they, you know. And so 
Sundays were not restful what, what for me. What was the thinking? Just because you were a white mm -hmm. American? Yeah, you must have money and take my kid. Take care of him. You know, and, you know, it, it, that that gets really old really fast. And, you know, the other thing is that they, uh, there, there's a kind of a cultural thing. So many times people would pull me over and say, Sister Rebecca, um, I, you know, I don't have a lot of opportunity. I'm wondering if you could, you know, can you buy me a computer? <laughs> or can you later on, when they've started being popular, can you get me an iPod? <laughs> and I'm thinking, I can't afford an iPod. <laughs> no, I can't get you an iPod. But it was continual pressure in that way. It was always, it was so many no's, 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 no, I can, no, 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 that I just, it was miserable. I just didn't, you know, I didn't want to go. And, um, so the first half of my experience in Haiti, I did go, but I was so isolated and I was, it was really, really difficult. And I started, um, I started questioning the gospel, the, the church organization in little small ways as being a little different than what I had grown up believing and the function of it. And at the same time, my own desires and my own heart, I will never give up the experiences that I had because I really had to turn to God. I really had to live in faith in a lot of different ways. We haven't even touched some of the experiences, some of the dangers that Tell presented itself, but themselves. But I, I started really thinking about God and who he was and if there is a God. And, you know, I just started explore, doing that. Explore that a little bit. Explore that if there is a God. And also give us an example of what you mean by you had to live by faith. Um, I said I, that that question presented itself, but uh, never my core belief is that I really do believe that there is a God. And I guess maybe what I started doing is redefining who he is and what he is. Um, but I knew that somehow that although I was looking at the worst conditions you could imagine, I was kind of aware that a lot of it is man-made, right? And I, I don't know the answers as to why God allows those things or why they happen or why he wouldn't save people in such misery that are calling out to him and asking. I don't know that. But through my few little experiences of having this soul-to-soul, person-to-person, eye-to-eye contact, holding and loving, I came to realize that complete love and God's awareness of these child. There was one time I went up, uh, up into a kuna, up into a, you know, there was a little baby in a crib in terrible condition and emaciated little baby dying and 
terrible sores all over her legs. And I don't even know if it was, I think he was a girl, but I took that little baby out onto a porch that was there and just started rocking, rocking her. And I remember just looking down and having this overwhelming feeling that, oh my goodness, God loves you, you know, so much. There was another time, I'm in Mother Teresa's orphanage, and that had about 150 babies, many of them dying. But actually, it was one of the best orphanages that we could relax in. We didn't have to scrub floors. We didn't have to try to figure out, you know, what T-shirts to tear up to make diapers out of. We didn't have to do any of that. So we would go there almost for a rest because all we had to do is pick up babies, hold them and rock them and love them. And so that was just a wonderful place for us to go. And so one day... Um, is that because it was run... I mean, it was run well by the Catholic nuns, you know, Mother Teresa's sect, um, Sisters of Charity, and it's just a sacred place. It's just such a, a beautiful place, and they've been there for years. In fact, Mother Teresa set it up, um, several facilities there in Port-au-Prince. And, but anyway, we liked going there, and... The, um, the sisters were always so kind to me. So I went to pick up um, a little baby. I don't know if it was a girl or boy, but the kind that you see on TV that's starving, that looks like a little old man, you know, no muscle whatsoever, dying. I mean, I knew that the, the baby was dying. And uh, I remember hesitating to pick up the baby just because I'm not afraid of babies. I'm very well acquainted. I, you know, I'm not shy about that, but this particular baby, I had no idea if I, it seemed like the, it was a bag of bones and I didn't know how brittle, you know, but I picked this baby up and was rocking this baby. And I'm not very good at lyrics of songs, <laughs> so, you know, so I start singing, you are a child of God realizing that I can't really sing those words, you know. I am a child of God. He has sent me here. He's given me parents kind and dear, you know. Okay, well, that doesn't fit. But I started humming this word, I mean, this song to this baby. There was no response from the baby. Really, really bad condition. I must have, I went and found, they had two rocking chairs in the whole facility, and so I went and found those rocking chairs and sat down in one of them, rocked and rocked and rocked. And it was probably a good two hours. And the little baby, I noticed the little hand came up a few inches and, and dropped down, you know, no energy. A few minutes later, the hand would come up, drop down. This happened over a period of time until finally this little baby got its fingers up to my mouth and patted my lips. And I remember, I mean, it was monumental effort, but this baby had this curiosity of where this sound was coming from. And I remember being filled with such love for this child. And I, and I made, I knew I may be the only manifestation of God's love that this baby will ever feel. 
but it's going to feel it before he dies. And I knew at that moment that God loved that baby. And I knew at that moment that God loved me, that he did love me. And so um, I have a real belief that our hope is love, that that's what we all respond to is is that love. We all crave it. We all want it. We all need it. And he is there to give that love. I have come to love the love messages of God, the beauties that surround us, the very air that we breathe, the circumstances that we have, the families that we have. It's all, all there. So I learned that in Haiti. So I want to, I want to go back because, um, I want to talk about the boys that came to live with you, how that evolved. And I also don't want to forget that you've got these two girls with you. Yeah. And I assume they're having their own experiences. How did they react to all of this? I mean, how, how, in contrast to you, were they going through the same things, the same experiences? Did you communicate about them? What was it like? We became best friends, best mother, daughter. I mean, we were so bonded and so we relied on each other so much because we were the com we were the comfort blanket for each other, right? My girls did everything and anything without any complaint. They were 100% throwing. We threw ourselves into the work. I mean, in the original orphanage that I told you about, we were going, first we went in and we brought all these supplies and we left them there. And then we discovered that if we left them there, they'd be stolen. The workers would steal them. And so then we had to carry even water. So we'd carry these big buckets, these big things of water. We would carry in our baby wipes. We'd carry in diapers if we had them. A lot of times we didn't have any diapers. Every supply, if it was shampoo, if it was soap, if it was anything, every day we'd carry it in. I need to ask really quick, where were these supplies coming from? Um, some of it we would just buy, and we weren't getting donations at that time, so I'm assuming that we were buying them out of our budget. Okay. Out of the little bit of money that I brought. Uh, the money went so much faster than I ever dreamed. I, I thought I had this idea that it would be like South America and cheaper prices. No, not so. It was a lot more expensive to live in Haiti in Port-au-Prince than it was to live in Utah. So the expenses, the food for everybody. Inflation and Yeah. I mean, it's just ex incredibly expensive. And so uh, anyway, we, so then we discovered that we had to take it out and bring it in. And so our day consisted of, we'd get there and then we kind of do an assembly. We, we made it a project. There, there was a big table. It was kind of broken down. We fixed the table. We asked them if we could use it. We put foam and then um, waterproof material. We found a fabric store downtown somewhere and bought this fabric and made a ch big, huge changing table. And then we got these tubs and we had a little line going. And so we'd get these babies and bathe them. And there was some big bales of uh, donations that 
came from the, you know, those big bales that the church sends out. So I started cutting them up and we started, and so we would make these diapers out of t-shirts and started putting the t-shirts on these kids and you know, we were just bathing them and loving them. And then we found a mat and we'd lay them on our chests. And so our whole day consisted of this hard work. And then we'd have to haul water. They did have like this well thing. It's not really a well. It's a cistern, a cement thing underneath the ground that they actually have to have a water truck come and fill. And it was very rarely filled, but you would throw a rope down with a bucket on it and pull up the water. It was really hard work. That was our day, and we just threw ourselves into it, and the girls did too. We talked about our feelings. We cried together. We prayed together constantly, you know. I mean, and then it got to the point later on, a little bit later on in our experience, after we had the boys come live with us, funds dried up. I mean, when I talk about faith and having to rely and turn to God, it was because I had never experienced that kind of insecurity where you really don't know where your meal is going to come from. You really don't know how you're going to pay rent. You really don't know. There's no backup. So let's so, go. Let's go there now, because okay. you do at the same time that you're doing the work in the orphanage, you also start kind of an outreach program in, for the homeless youth set up. Give us a little bit of background into what it, what the homeless community is like in Haiti. Okay. And then how the boys came to live with you. Okay, it's not really, yeah, a little bit different terminology than homeless community, but there's a lot of street kids, and they're mostly boys that live on the street. Most of the girls uh, that are either abandoned or run away from home for various reasons uh, end up, the girls end up in the homes uh, as servants, basically, and the boys are on the street. Um. And so about two or three weeks after really hard work in the orphanages of just constant working with these babies, I knew that we were just getting beyond run down. And so I, we made the decision that we were going to go try to find a beach. There weren't any close beaches that were nice because they were so dirty and polluted. But there was a few little resort areas that were about an hour and a half to two hours away. So we took this little jaunt and found, you know, asked around and found this, when I say resort, they weren't nice resorts, but kind of a resort for what we were seeing. We went to this resort and while we were there, I heard, overheard um, a Christian missionary group, a woman telling other people that she had met this man that had been helping the street kids and that through a series of, you know, that they had been kicked out of the home that they were in and, you know, they needed help and she was trying to get, you know, um, tarps together and things like that to give these boys shelter. So anyway, it fascinated me and I I said, I, I, I hope I'm, I need to ask you, I've overheard what you were talking about. Can you give me some information about that? Interested me. So she did. And I was able to um, track him down over the next few weeks. And we met this man that supposedly, I mean, that's a really long story, but he wasn't as good as purported. In fact, he was kind of a bad guy. But um, I didn't know that at the time. And so we called him, met him, and started to get involved with about, they were about 
a group of 60 kids. So we had access to a vehicle. Um, we helped them move into a new facility. We provided a lot of their meals. You know, we'd come up with the meals. It's hard to feed that many kids. It was very expensive. And, um, but so we started doing that. Then we started doing activities with these kids. And we had kind of kept where we lived secret, you know, like we didn't, we didn't do much with our home. So we went to where they were. Um, they were just so fun and delightful and, you know, filled with energy. But these were kids, these were boys that had been living on the street and then were pulled into this boys, quote, boys home, which consisted of a cement structure. There wasn't a whole lot, but it, according to the boys, it was better than living on the street. But there's many, many, many people, and especially children that live on the street. And a lot of times they just run away because it's better on the street than at home. And Why? Well, um, one of my, two of my boys have since told me, you know, slowly I get their stories out of them. I guess people are wondering why I say my boys. I ended up adopting eight Haitian boys um, that were former street kids. But so I'm getting a sense that there's a lot of abuse, a lot of beatings. They're hungry. A lot of times they're not sent to school. So there's not a lot of motivation to stay home. Some of them didn't like to see their mothers beat. Um, one of my sons knew that he says, well, I knew it was because of me, wasn't his real father at home. And, you know, the, the other, the man that lived with the mother didn't appreciate having to feed him. And, and so, you know, they just leave for various reasons. Sometimes they're kicked out. Sometimes they're taken to a different city and just left. Give me an idea of the age. Um, five, six, seven years old. Yeah. Several of my boys were out at five. One was left in a different city, um, to be a rest of it, a, a slave. At the age he left it, um, I think he was like seven. And five years later, made his back way back to try to find his mother at twelve. So all you know, just heart wrenching. Anyway, we got involved with this group. So here we are. We're going into the orphanages and working with these little kids, and we're also um, being swept into this whole other culture of the street and these boys, and they're filled with life and love, and they own this city, and they're. They're free, but they know they're hungry too, right? They know they want a family and they want to call somebody mom and they they want to be taken care of, but they also have this good part of, <laughs> of this freedom and kind of like newsies, you know, that feeling <laughs> <laughs> how they're, how they're, he's just, they were just delightful. And, uh, so it ends up that, um, we started bonding with certain boys. We started doing things like soccer games. We'd buy them, you know, soccer balls and 
they, you know, they don't have any shoes or anything. They just find a field and they're just running over these sharp rocks, you know, and they just, and then we started doing, they started begging me. They would, this is how they'd say it. Would you come and do church, do church for us? <laughs> and, um, I did a, I did approach the church and like, what, you know, what should we do? They want, they want to learn about God and, and the church, I guess, is not set up for that. They, they decline because I, I, I think logistically, you know, what do you do? I, I don't know. So we would go on Sunday mornings and teach Bible stories <laughs> and sing, and, and they just loved it. And then they wanted to go to our church, and um, they didn't have – this is a group of 60. I'm not talking about just mine right then. This is before they came. And so they would, you know, anything that they could find to wear, they would find. So they'd have big, huge shirts or – you know, these were boys. They were all boys, and they'd wear these little pink shoes and little tutus and anything, <laughs> anything girl or boy that they could put on their bodies. Then, and they wash their face. They're ready for church. And the girls were like the Pied Piper. So we'd have about fifteen boys that would want to go to church with us at a time. <laughs> and we, at that time, we didn't have any vehicle. We walked everywhere. So every Sunday How morning, we didn't have a vehicle. Just uh, it was, it was kind of taken away from us from some of the Haitian members. <laughs> decided that <laughs> it was theirs instead. <laughs> it's just anyway, it was a very just a cultural thing. <laughs> so our vehicle that was promised to us by the owner <laughs> of another American organization, church member. Um, took it away. Well, he didn't take it away. <laughs> they said it was for us to use, but the Haitians, the, these, this guy decided different. The bishop. <laughs> so anyway. Um, but anyway, so we were without a vehicle in this big city and we were walking and on foot, but it was just such a funny sight because we, <laughs> it would be me and my two girls and then like 15 boys all dressed up in these funny outfits, walking single file. You can't walk by each other, single file all the way to church. And then we'd file into church. <laughs> it was just such a funny a funny time but anyway they were just hungry for any kind of attention and then we started different classes and we you know started doing all of these uh, activities it ended up that um we bonded with certain boys and to make a long long story short i ended up adopting the eight boys all within a range of what four years in age and it took us several years to gather all the paperwork many of them didn't know their birthdays they didn't know where they were born so there was a lot of going all over trying to find paperwork and you know get, gathering all that when i went down mm -hmm. all the boys were living with you that that you the boys that you had yeah. taken and they're all living with you none of them had a concept of possession. And I remember one day you were getting really frustrated with one of them because you said, well, where is your shirt? I don't understand where, 
where did it go? And he'd thrown it away because it had gotten dirty. (laughs) In the garbage. And you were trying to explain to him, but that is your shirt. You have to take care of it. Yeah. You have to, you have to keep your shirt that that's yours. You need to wash it. It's not. And anyway, yeah. <laughs> I remember you telling me they don't understand possessions. They yeah. don't know that they that this belongs to them. Right. And then they take care of it. Right. And then another funny thing was that you were so frustrated because every time they unloaded or, you know, they washed the dishes, they just put them in random places. There yeah. was no sense of order. So talk a little bit about that, what that was like to take all these homeless children okay. into your house. So I bonded with these kids. We then invited them after the girls and I talked. They actually approached me and said, Mom, we think we need to expand our family. We we need to have adopt these boys. So we ended up taking eight into our home. And man, was it a ride. (laughs) I mean, we are two girls and a mommy that are pretty innocent and... A lot of boys that have no concept of privacy, <laughs> no concept of uh, nudity, <laughs> that might not be appropriate, no concept of using toilets appropriately. <laughs> so to give you an idea, first of all, it was just shocking at first because one of the, um, I remember one of the boys coming he was actually wasn't one of the street kids. I actually had ten originally that came. Yeah, the he ten came, were there. When he I came there. from a an orphanage, and the first thing he did when he was dropped off was walk to the front steps and pee <laughs> <laughs> on the steps. <laughs> I'm like, okay, no, <laughs> this cannot happen. And you know, so I was finding myself with really, I felt like they were a bunch of two year olds. I was teaching them how to use toilets. You know, you don't go, the the sink is not the urinal. Uh, You need to close the door. There's girls here. You know, it just, they would, like you said, um, we would eat. They would just throw their dishes on the ground outside. They, you know, I would find stuff in the garbage if they used the garbage. (laughs) And it was just... It was just quite a ride. I mean, it was so stressful because I'm trying to teach them just just how to function in a house, you know. And then they got very, very, very angry with me. If I ever asked for any privacy, they wanted to be have full access to my time and to my room. <laughs> so I'd, I tried to explain them, but I need to change or I need to go to the bathroom. And with girls as well, they found this too. And oh, they'd get offended. You want to lock us out? <laughs> so they'd get mad at us. And so the first little while was just figuring out, first of all, how to live together and then how to teach them. About all just these simple things, you know, functions. (laughs) Another thing I want you to talk about is how they got involved with the work. Because when I went, they were. Were they? they? In the orphanages. In the orphanages. So talk a little bit about that. I quickly realized that, um, you know, service is good for everybody. So so a lot of times we think the very poor, well, they're not going to serve the very poor. But that's the best thing. And so... 
we started taking these kids, these big old, and let me, it wasn't just the boys that came into my home, but it was this group of, you know, 60 or so kids, many of them really rough looking. Like they, they pattern themselves. They follow this, this image of, um, American rapper, right? That's like, they're all their dreams. And so they have those head things on and chain bling bling. And they're, they're looking pretty rough sometimes. Um, but we started taking them into the orphanages with us and they'd have them sing and do, you know, hold kids and, that was the most tender thing because, oh, I mean, they would cry to see because they weren't familiar with the orphanages either. They didn't see. They didn't know. They had never been in an orphanage. And uh, but when they went in and they just fell in love with it, they loved it. They loved going. And so um, that was really a sweet thing to see them be, be able to turn around and, and still serve. Anybody can serve. You just really, you just need two hands and arms. and. So I know that this is kind of a vulnerable topic, but it wasn't like you went down there and every person that was there serving worked together and there was a spirit right. of, you came in contact with a lot of people that talked bad about you, that worked against you. You had a lot of conflict. Do you mind kind of? expressing some of those conflicts and talking about those difficulties? Yeah. I think that um, the, th there's a huge difference between going for a week or two on a group trip and what you see, what you do, than when you start living among... You know, it, the the problems present themselves to you and you meet a lot of different people and Haiti is is very corrupt the government's corrupt and parts of the culture are corrupt i one of the things i think you're referring to that you were there and present during part of it was this orphanage that we worked in um, a, several groups got involved in helping and they, they were, they really did want to help the orphanage. But from my perspective, I was in there every day and I became a fly on the wall. I became, my daughters and I became part of the fixtures and the furniture and so the orphanage directors and the workers would forget that I was there and that I was seeing what went on behind the scenes. And so then these groups of people would come in and they would stay for a week and they'd build a playground or something. And they got very invested in helping the orphanage, but also in the cause and in the image of it and what in the stories of it and what they got to go home and tell. And when you're doing that and you, and I'm not bashing them because I don't believe motives were bad, but you tend not to want to see the bad things. You don't want to explain them. You don't want to deal with them. 
you don't want to believe of yourself that maybe you're putting your efforts in supporting something that shouldn't be, or, you know, that there should be some discussion or hard decisions made, that kind of thing. And so, um, a lot, several of those groups stayed in my home and used my home as a, you know, like a guest house because a lot, there wasn't many places to stay. And so they were, um, it was very hard for me because in some of the circumstances, when I tried to tell them some of the things that were going on, uh, sexual abuse, uh, voodoo ritual stuff, um, these were serious things. These, these were and medical, you know, medicines that were being given. The people that were there helping got very angry with me and a lot of times didn't believe me. And those that did then, if they approached the orphanage director, he became very frustrated that I was snitching on him and believed that he should be autonomous and be able to do anything he wanted with the donations. Well, I was seeing where donations went and what they weren't being used for. And I was seeing these voodoo things that were going on and curses and, you know, practices of care that, I mean, how the babies were treated. And so it got to be very, very sticky uh, to the point that I pulled out of that orphanage at one point. And um, then because of that situation, some of those visitors and people, it was never got to a head where there was really one-on-one -on -one confrontation, but I was very aware that, you know, they, they didn't see me as an advocate. They saw me as kind of, I don't know, I don't really know, threatening in some way. And, uh, but then there's other, the, it's very, very difficult to really, I came to really, um, appreciate that I am somewhat of a loner because it gave me safety. Um, because there's so many political things that go on there and hardships in figuring out what you referred to, just how do you operate? Um, if you all, if you have different ideas of, you know, what should be done. And so in, in one way that I didn't have a lot of friends or a group, you know, to answer to was actually a real blessing because I, you know, I could determine uh, what direction I wanted to go into. And it's kind of inherent. The, uh, you know, the corruption is inherent in and out of the church. It doesn't matter. It's the culture, you know, is very difficult to function in because they do things completely different than we do them. And they see our actions sometimes as not a good thing. They're bad things. And so it, it that part was really difficult at times. So earlier on, you mentioned that there were experiences that really tested your faith, that you had to rely on God that literally you had to rely on God. I want, I want to know if you can share one of those experiences or, or give us an idea of what you mean by literally rely on God. Okay, I'll give you several. Okay. I'm going to talk about the danger factor first. Okay. So I'm this little Mormon mommy. <laughs> <laughs> 
in Port-au-Prince. And it was to myself, like a movie sometimes. Because, um, okay, for one, when I took the boys into my home, the, the, man, the boys' home that they came from, um, the director was a man that sexually abused and used these straight kids. Um, so he used their situation as a way for a way of life for himself by giving them shelter. And he was not happy that the boys came to live with me, I think because he felt like his dirty little secrets were going to get out and he didn't know what that meant. And so he almost had an all out, you know, attack mode. And he was American. He was an American man. And because of that situation, we started being threatened. And uh, one day I came back, my girls were with me and several of the boys. And as we drove into our, our home, our compound, into the yard, one of my sons came running up and said, um, Mom, this man came to the gate today asking for the American women. And they, and he, you know, I said that you weren't here and he wanted to come in. And I said, no, you can't come in. And he exposed two guns. He lifted up his shirt and there's two guns. Told the boys that they, he knows where we live and he knows that the American women are here and he'll be back. And, um, so, you know, I'm like, wow, you know, we're being threatened with these. So we went on guard duty. And remember, this is like, there's no police force to help you. There's hardly any hospital or medical care. I mean, you don't, you're on your own there, right? So it's just such a funny thing what we did. So we um, went out and bought machetes. <laughs> Like, I don't know what we're going to do with the machetes, but we slept with them. We each had a, a machete that we slept with for our, and then we went on guard duty and we put, we had a flat roof. And so we got this huge pile of rocks um, in case we were attacked <laughs> and which was a real possibility. And we actually were stormed by a group of, of uh, young men that this American man turned against us and uh, they stormed our house. But the way they fight is with rocks. And so we had our rocks and, you know, we were each taking This sounds a unreal. I know. It we sounds took unreal. a turn, you know, on guard duty on the top of the roof, watching for them to come back with their guns to kill us. <laughs> and so, you know, you start praying. And things become very real. Another situation, um, we, one time, um, we were trying to get a group of the boys home and we had, I had this, just this feeling, you know, that, um, things were not quite right. And pretty soon we went driving up this one road and a gunfight, uh, started started up right in front of us and um you know they were 
chasing and shooting. And and at those times, you are very aware that you you need, you are dependent on the protection of God and angels. They become very real to you, you know. Um, that happened to me several times where I would have to back up or turn around, turn the truck around because of, you know, shots starting. There were, during the coup, which was Aristide being ousted by the rebel forces, was uh, Aristide's home was about a mile away from us, and we were on a main road where his entourage would go up and down. So there were military, you know, um, helicopters that were his protection, um, and they would come right over our home where we could look eye to eye with the guys with machine guns, you know, pointed at us. Many times on the street, um, I mean, they carry guns and I would be three inches. I mean, you know, all the cars are very compact and just squeezing past each other and a group of these mean men with big machine guns, you know, would come and I'd look over and there's a barrel three inches from my nose. You know, the, the violence is incredible what they live with there. Beheadings. So the boys would come and say, Mom, Mom, you can't go to this street today because they're doing beheadings. So neighborhood tribunals would get together and the police would come and participate and they would single, you know, people out that they thought had done something bad or whatever, and they would behead them. Um, one day, the girls and I decided we, we got so tired of always having to be in the presence of these boys or, you know, not being by ourselves, not having a moment by ourselves. And we decided to go out to dinner or lunch, an early dinner. It was still light and but we let the time get away with us and it got dark and started getting dark and we knew, oh my gosh, we, you know, you just aren't out at dark. Um, so we came, we were coming home through, a, there's no lighting, remember, so it gets very dark and through kind of a dangerous area. And all of a sudden I'm driving and all of a sudden there's this head and a torso legs and I'm swerving my truck trying not to hit human body parts traumatic oh, sobering so my and one more thing is food and support I didn't have money coming in I had and it always worked out and over the years I've realized God is always there it's always worked out. I don't worry about those things anymore. And at the time, I was forced to really know what it meant to really rely. And and I think a lot of people do, but it's hard to, no. to get to a depth of it when we're so comfortable. And also, and I have to ask this question, there is an idea that there is a worthiness thing. That God will only, do you know what I'm getting I'm at? I'm so glad you said that. In culture. I want you to talk about that because you weren't in a position where you were paying tithing or where you were 
Do you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. you weren't going through those checklist things. It was a different kind of life. So talk about that. Well, even more than that um, was this knowledge of my own unworthiness. Like I said before, I'm facing myself in the mirror and I'm seeing some ugly things that I did not like. And, but at the same time, God was taking care of me. And I felt it was almost confusing because I'm like, wow, you know, like he's, he's blessing me, even though I know I'm feeling like I'm not worthy of the blessing, but I've come to realize it's not a matter of worthiness, right? I don't believe that. I don't believe that, oh, they're being blessed. They must be worthy. Or they must be doing something right. And, oh, they're not being blessed. So they must not be worthy. You know, that that is not a, a principle that I, you know, I believe in because of my own personal knowledge and, you know, I mean, he's God and he's there and he's our provider. And we really can, we know, we can know that he is there. Okay. So I didn't define his help a lot of times. I just learned. So I didn't define beforehand what he needed to do to help me. I always, I just came to the knowledge that he was there and that something would, something yeah, would work out. Yeah. That I could rely on him because I had to rely on him and it panned out. I was protected and I was helped and we did get food and, you know, things did work out. So I, I want to go back to that moment where I would, my personal come from that moment on my mission, I felt so ashamed because I behaved in a way that I fundamentally knew was not Christ-like. Yeah. Where instead of opening my arms and embracing these people that had no real control over their conditions, I kind of recoiled because my culture and I wasn't prepared emotionally. Right. What were some of your moments like that? Well, or did you have them? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, I, I think when I was quite a mild mother, very patient, I had these three little girls and I mean, they were wild little things and, you know, I didn't mind messes and I went through, you know, they went through rebellion. I don't know. None of it really. Like I never, I didn't spank my kids. I didn't yell at my kids. I wasn't a big yeller. <laughs> but when I got, to, when I was in the circumstance with Haiti and with these boys, it was so challenging and the cultures were so different. and. It was so hard. For instance, um, one of the things I told the boys that you cannot bring a weapon into this. You can't have weapons. Because I had seen them fighting in the boys' home. Like there was circumstance I would hear crack and bottles were being broken. And they'd go at each other with broken bottles, you know. That kind of thing, um, and we would, the girls were amazing. Like, they had the, all those boys wrapped around their little finger, I mean, they would tell them, and they would tackle them. 
these big boys take the bottles away and scold them and you can't do that <laughs> these boys listen to him but i told the boys you can't bring weapons in here and you, there's no violence we can't do that and one time i found out one of the boys had hidden a knife in what they call a bot their box and threatened some of the other boys i'm going to kill you you know <laughs> That was so different for me. I hadn't had boys, first of all, and we hadn't been a fighting family. And so that just set me off. I don't know why. There's probably a lot of other pressures at that time. And I went into, I went storming into this boy's room and he was laying on his bed and I started to hit him and I was beating him. And I it was several seconds long. I mean, it wasn't just, oh, I realized right away, you know, and stopped. I was beating this boy, and then I realized, and I went running into my room and, you know, flung myself on my bed and had a good long cry, not believing that I could do that, that I could beat another human being, you know out of control. I was out of control. And uh, other times, you know, when the boys, I think it was the violence that got to me the most. And these boys would, you know, start to fight. Uh, two of my sons pulled out knives and I think they were fighting over a piece of food or something stupid. You know? <laughs> um, and I just... I just lost and I'm like, you want to see, you know, you want to see violence? I'll show you violence. And I threw a, the knife down at their feet across the room. And, you know, I, there were several times I had to tackle and headlock the boys and wrestle them to the ground. And, you know, uh, one time just out of, they were out of control fighting, but it was, it was serious. It was we're going to kill each other. They're going to kill each other, you know? And, uh, one of the boys kind of pushed me out of the way. I was trying to get to him to, to, to have him stop. And, and, uh, just out of reaction, I full on hit right to the face. I belted him and put him down on the ground. And I mean, that's embarrassing to admit, but it was, it was shocking, right? And then I also, for myself, so that's why I say I had to look at myself. And then there's the emotional things where I considered myself this grown woman. And I was having emotions that I felt belonged to young teenage kids. You know, I, I didn't know what to do in a lot of the circumstances. I was having inappropriate, like having feelings hurt even though I knew better and I knew these were kids that, you know, disadvantaged and didn't have, but I was getting hurt feelings, you know, in my own home and just a, a myriad of things that you just have to look at yourself and you're like, I am not who I thought I was or I'm capable of more than, but on the flip side of that, I also learned that I, in, on the good side, that I was capable that. I learned I am so strong, not physically, that too, <laughs> in certain circumstances, but 
I am strong in what I can do and, and how much I could endure and what I did endure. And that I was more capable of good than I ever dreamed as well. And so I think it's just, it's just that stark, raw emotion, you know, and circumstances that was just so different and unique for me. So you're learning to, you're learning that God is there despite your personal weaknesses, mm -hmm. that it's not, that he's still there. Yeah. He's still there through all of them. Yeah. And I don't mean, I don't mean to say that everything's going to be rosy and okay, because you know what? Really bad things happen. Give us an example of what one of those really bad things was. I had been doing the paperwork for the adoptions and we had gone through the whole process. There's two issues, the adoption from the country and the paperwork and adoption into the new country, in this case, the United States. So I'm dealing with both. And it had gone through, um, we had put in applications and things in the American consulate and but the American consulate was only manned by an American officer like every three months and they would come for one or two days and you would try to have to get the appointment then. The rest of the time it was run by Haitian locals that were acting on behalf of the American consulate, but there was so much corruption. And then on the Haitian side, there was also corruption and bribes and all that stuff. So anyway, we had gone through several years, right? And we, we get through all the paperwork. I get a call from the American uh, officer and he says, your papers are here waiting for you. And I will be gone. I'm leaving tomorrow. They're only there a few days. I'm leaving tomorrow, but your papers are here. So when I get there to pick up the papers. So in the meantime, when I hear that, I mean, we're in a big mess. We're trying to leave the country, right? We're trying to move. When I hear that and I have the verbal okay from the officer, I gave up my lease in the house, told them that we were leaving. And they, that's a very offensive thing. It's like you almost have an obligation to pay rent for the rest of your life. They were very mad, you know, because they were soaking me for, you know, more rent. But they were mad that I was leaving. And but I lost that lease. In the meantime, I go down there to pick up the papers and they stole them. The Haitian officers, my papers were gone. So we didn't have any papers, legal papers to have the boys leave. So we're homeless. We don't have a home. And so my assistant... And you can't leave the country. And we can't leave the country. So my assistant said, who is very poor, I guess you're, you can all come and stay with me for a little bit until we can, until you can figure out. We had to do that. But this was in the... It's hard to explain, but it's the inside neighborhoods, there's no roads, there are little paths that are just housed, or little tiny cement structures that are on these hillsides, you know, and in, in his case, he was at the bottom of a kind of a ravine, and we had to hike in there, and there was uh, 
two or three families in that little place, one little horrible bathroom, no running water, all bucket carrying from the bottom of the ravine up, one room, no privacy whatsoever. My daughter was with me at the time, and we moved into there. That was my darkest time. I my I had been a little judgmental of my assistant. For one, um, he didn't get married right in the temple. He got married first, civilly, and um, we're planning to go to the temple one or two years after to get married. And I was a little judgmental of that. I'm thinking, because I'm used to our culture, you know, like, no, you go get married in the temple and you can, surely you can come up with the money, you know, and I'm, and then I asked him several times, you know, well, do you have family prayer and you should have family home evening during our discussions, right? These are the things that we should do and you should do that. So all of a sudden I'm living in his home. And there is not a place or a time you can pray in private. <laughs> there, I all of a sudden these revelations, like okay, um, sometimes it's not so easy to be in other. These are just little things that I learned not to judge. And but anyway, I'm back to it was my darkest time. We, my daughter and I, would lay in bed. He gave me the one bed they have. So here's ten boys. He and his wife, two or three other families, laying on the floor, a dirt floor bathroom with no running water and everybody using that bathroom and no privacy. It it was just horrible. And we would just cry, 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 cry in bed. And, uh, but, you know, you learn that's when i guess that's one of those examples that the situation wasn't what i would have chosen or what you would think as an answer but the thing is is that i knew he was there and it's all worked out right it's going to work out and we're learning from it and i'm gaining this appreciation and, and knowledge of how people i thought i was living bad i was rough circumstance but I didn't really know, you know, how, how the couple, how they were living and what it, you know, just anyway, that's what I was trying to say is that you don't always have the vision that you think, but I learned to know that we really don't have to worry so much about the day. We don't have to worry about those kind of things. But what we do have to worry about is how we, you know, how we use our lives, how we celebrate life, how we view our brothers and sisters across the world and across the street and in the bad part of town. And we're responsible that are, for one another. Yeah, we are. But more important, maybe not for support. You know, I can't support everybody. But I cannot judge and I can look past looks and I can look past circumstance and I, I can know that God is their father too and loves, you know, we, we can find God anywhere we are. Come the fount of every blessing to my heart to sing the grace 
Thank you for joining us today on A Thoughtful Faith. To discuss this podcast, check us out at athoughtfulfaith.org. The music from this podcast was generously donated by Lisa Frazier. Hear more from her at lisafrazier.com. See you.